Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Our scripture today is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. Thank you, Graham. Good morning again and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. As we've been saying, we've been looking at our LSQ DNA the past couple weeks. We've been doing this because it's important as we relearn our rhythms to relearn the principles of this church, to re-remember what we're about. And so we've been doing this because if you just have these vision and mission statements, like one of our vision and mission statements is that we, you know, we are a church not just for ourselves, but for others. But what does that even mean? What does that even do? And so we're looking in the, the, our, our text here to figure out now, how now shall we live? I mean, this is the question. Go to our text. When Jesus is asked in verse 25, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Even if you're not a Christian here this morning, even if you don't know what you believe or you're somewhere on that sort of spectrum, this is the same question, asking like a religious way, but it's the same question of like, what should I do with my life? What, what's the point of everything? How shall I live? Like, this is the question. My, my father started the original Redeemer over 30 years ago, 1989. And the reason, I'm sorry, back then, the answer to this question essentially was, at least for New Yorkers, was make as much money as you can and have a good life with it. Now today, some folks are still trying to live that out, but culture has changed, where culturally now it's not as acceptable to say that. Collectively, culture has moved away from that narrative, and now it's trying to build a new story that is trying to hold together two, what I would say, contradictory ideas at one. And these are the ideas. 
simultaneously, you're supposed to hold that on one level, you've evolved out of meaninglessness, just randomly, and that one day when you die, you're going to go into meaninglessness. And yet somehow in between, you're supposed to have meaning and, and truth and reality. And so on one hand, you've come from meaninglessness, and you're going to go to meaninglessness. And then the second idea is you're also in between, right now, supposed to do justice and love others. And if you don't, we're going to shame you and guilt you for it. We're trying to hold those views together, and it's not working. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at a contrast to that view of reality for why we should do justice and mercy and look at the biblical view why should Christians care about justice and mercy? And this is probably the most famous, the main passage that Christianity looks at. So let's do this in three parts. Let's look at, one, the modern concepts of justice and how they don't work. Two, the biblical view of justice and what it's rooted in. And then three, how do we actually do this? All right, I'll say that again. Why, why do the modern concepts of justice not work? What are the biblical roots of justice, and then three, how do we actually do it? So first, the modern concept of, of justice. Go back to our text. I know the, the word justice doesn't show up in our text necessarily, but Jesus in this text roots the goal of all of life to love God and love other people, and that is the basis for justice. And, and of course, the law expert who you can kind of almost place yourself into this person, wants to know precisely what does that mean? What does that actually look like? And so what Jesus does, he tells this story. And the story is about this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which if you geographically, you can now go to Google Maps and, and look at this road. It was 17 miles, still is 17 miles long, and there's about a 3,000 foot elevation change from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I, I don't know if you've, go, if you've gone hiking around the New York City area, about 30 minutes away, the Catskills, many of the peaks are about 3,000 feet, 3,500 feet high. So just for, for your mind, that's a, a, a huge amount of elevation decline going downhill. So over 17 miles, you have all these twists and turns and these rocks and cracks and crevices. Great places to hide, to be a robber, to jump out, and steal from somebody else, and that's exactly what happens here. And this particular person, the Greek word, it's, they're left half dead. And what you see is then a priest and a Levite coming from Jerusalem walk by this individual. Both are probably coming from Jerusalem, we can deduce, because they're a priest and a Levite, and the temple is in Jerusalem. They're probably there to do temple duties. So that means these people were moral people. These people were religious people. And look at the—and go to the verse 31. Look at the text. What happens when they see this person? It says, when he saw the man—so there's, there's an acknowledgment that the, the, the priest sees the man. And then look at verse 32. The Levite saw the man too. They both see the person. We need to stop at this place, though, because this is the question— that everybody has to ask. I see the injustice. I see the things going on. But what do I owe that person? We're all asking this question. What is the average New Yorkers asking? I know I'm supposed to put the wrongs of the world right. But to what degree? What do I owe other people? I think most people, if you ask them, what is justice? Go, go out in, into Manhattan and say, what is justice? They'll mostly probably say it's to put 
right what is wrong in the world. And everybody agrees with that more or less. But the real dis disagreement comes with how. How does it happen? And I believe we disagree about the method. There are different views of justice out there. Let me give you a couple examples. Well, number one, the, there's the older libertarian view of justice that essentially says what a just world would be that people are free to express themselves. People are free to uh, focus on their own speech, like freedom of speech. People are free and have the right to uh, buy and sell goods. You have the freedom to you do you. And this is the older libertarian view that if you really want to do justice, it's to create a world where people are free. But if you listen closely, the problem with that is that it downplays the idea that there are social forces out there that cause some people to have less choice than other people. I grew up in this town. I went to middle school, New York City public school, middle school. And the largest projects, I actually grew up near the largest projects in, in the country ca called Queensbridge, just on the other side of uh, the Queensboro Bridge. And we both went, most of the kids from that uh, projects and myself, we both went to public school, but that doesn't necessarily mean we had the same education. A study came out a couple years ago pointing out that if you begin to read to your child from birth every night, that when your child gets to kindergarten, that child has heard 1.4 million words more than other kids that are not read to. And that 1.4 million words means that they have a larger vocabulary, they're better writers, they're better at math, they're more likely to succeed. And my parents did that for me. And so therefore, I had social structures, I had cultural assumptions that other kids did not have. And so when everybody says... In, the, in sort of classical view of, in America, that you're free to do whatever you want. I think what's happening, we're seeing this culturally, is people are realizing, wait a second, everybody is not actually equally free. And this is why this view is sort of passing away. So what you're seeing is there's an emergence of a new view of justice, which would say, hey, to fix the inequalities of the world, is to, to fix the inequalities of the outcomes out there is we need a new view of justice where we disempower the powerful that have maintained these systems. My kids growing up, they, um, we still do it, they, they like to make up games. And these games are usually derivatives of hide and seek or, or tag. And what, you, what, you, what they would do is they would have these games and they would change the rules in the middle of the games to figure out a way so that they, that they would more likely win. And sometimes I would try to join these games, and they're like, okay, Dad, you can play, but um, you have to do it on your knees. Or, you know, you have to do it with one hand behind your back. And I'd be like, hey, that's not fair. That's not fair. And they're like, Dad, that's a libertarian view of justice. You can't do that. No, they, didn't, they, they don't do that. Um, but that's the difference, is that some people think the way to fix the system is to change the power of the players. And so, I actually, there's an, there was an article right after that study came out about uh, reading to your child gives them an advantage. The New York Times wrote an article saying, well, since parents who read to their kids are giving their kids an unfair advantage, the answer, the solution is for us not to read to our kids, which I would argue is, is, is problematic. But, but there, it's, it fits the view of disempower the powerful. However, here's the problem with that. If everything is just about the power, 
then the problem is then that even that claim, it's all about power, is a power move. I'll put it this way. If, if your life, if everything that's happening in the world is, can be reduced to your race or your class or your culture, and that's all that's out there, then to make that statement is actually a power move too. So why, we sh- why should we believe in that? I think calling out oppressive people, it can be very good, but actually calling out, I think we're realizing calling out oppressive people can actually be a way to be oppressive, to use your power. And this is where it gets really dicey, because then if all morality is just our power moves against each other, then there's no morality. So here we go. This is the problem, is the modern views of justice are flawed. They don't work. So go back to our text. If both the Levite and the priest saw the problems, the man is in the ditch— and they, and they didn't help him. I'm in New York. I've, I've grown up in this town. You, you are too. We do the same thing in this space. As New Yorkers see people in ditches, but seeing them is not enough. You can come up with every single excuse, every valid excuse is out there. Think of the excuses they might have said. Hey, I don't want to stop. It's dangerous. I've said that excuse. Hey, I don't want to stop. It's gonna, this is going to be too time intensive. I'm going to do it in a different place. It's going to be too costly. It's going to be too... Uh, you know, maybe this person's already dead. It's going to be a waste. Why would, we, why would I want to help out somebody who's not going to really be able to receive the help that I give them? And yet we live in a world that says, try harder, be better, right? The way we're trying to get people to do justice is to guilt them or shame them into action, and yet that's not preventing us from just walking by on the other side. And so the question is, what do we do? If you are not a Christian here, this morning. You need to see that the best ways that we know how to get people to to do the right thing is not working. And if you are a Christian, the text is very simple too. The way to love people is to love God and love others. And yet that hasn't moved us either, and that's the problem, number one. Now, number two, fine. Jesus has an answer. Jesus has an answer. It's It's the biblical root of justice. Go to verse 27. You've got to read this over and over and over again. He says the, he, the answer that the law expert gives, that Jesus says right, is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, God says the answer for justice is love. Now, some of you are like, that's not very interesting because even Beatles songs say that. That everybody says the answer is love. But everyone, to be clear, everybody knows the answer should be love. The problem is why and how are different. And so this is, I think, one of our—if the Christian view says our biggest problem isn't power, it isn't freedom, as important as those values are, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is disordered loves. That the way we've ordered our lives, we are prioritizing our comfort and our money and our stuff over other people. This is from Augustine. Augustine says, all injustice is loving your wealth and your power more than loving others. And so justice is really loving other people more than your comfort and your power and your wealth. And so to be clear, what Jesus is doing in this text, and people misread this all the time, he's not just saying— There's so many layers here. He's not just saying, go be loving. What he's saying is there's a different definition of love as an action of putting the needs of another person above yourself. 
And to illustrate that, then he uses this story. And he particularly uses a story of, of a Samaritan and a Jew. And this is where you have to know a little bit about the geopolitical uh, time 2,000 years ago between Samaritans and Jews. That Jewish individuals believed Samaritans were not just wrong, they were not just bad, they were not just uh, misinformed. These people were considered dangerous. And Jesus deliberately picked somebody, not just of another race, not just of another class or culture, but somebody who's dangerous to say that the bounds of our love should not be there at all. There, that, that there are no bounds to the love of others. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Look at what the Samaritan does in verse 33. He too, just like the Levite and the priest, sees the individual. He saw him, and when he saw him, it says he took pity on him. And that's not the best English translation. The Greek there is the word compassion. He took compassion on him. In fact, uh, it's the same word that is used of the father in the parable of the prodigal sons when the younger brother squandered his inheritance, when he did all this terrible actions against the family, when he's walking back, when the father sees him from far off and begins, before he even begins to run to him, it says that he has compassion. It's the same word here. But look how the compassion manifests itself. Instead of the father who runs towards his son and kills the fatted calf here, compassion is putting himself at risk, taking days out of his travel to care for this person, putting them—I read this. This is new. Every time I come back to this text, there's something new. Putting him on his donkey. Commentaries point out that when he's—that means he had to walk beside the donkey. This person has the elevated position. He's taking the role of a servant in that moment. And he, what does he do? He takes him to an inn in a Jewish-controlled area. And I'm, I, I had to think about what would this, what would be a modern way to, to do this? It, imagine you are an American pilot in World War II. You crash in Germany behind en enemy lines. You find a German soldier, and you bring this individual to the hospital. If you walk into that hospital— People are not going to look kindly on you. They're going to think you're the one who did this to them. It was that dangerous. And then it says in verse 35, he stayed the night with him. Look, in verse 35, it says the next day, which assumes he stayed the night with him. And that means compassion. In English, sometimes that word compassion is like a feeling. It's, it's fuzzy. But in this text, compassion has a real world cash value. It means service. It means action. And so... This is where our modern version of love is this fuzzy word, but love in biblical love is, is action-based. And this is where we need to kind of pause for a second, because that means then this, this parable is not just here for you to say, go and take action. I've seen it, this preach, this passage is preached so many times saying, okay, I know what I need to do. I need to walk out these doors and today, from this day forth, I promise to love God and love others. 
People do this all the time. They walk, they think the main view of this is to go out and be committed to the betterment of other people beyond our own feelings, to make their happiness our happiness. And yet, you know, that sounds nice on paper, but then think about it. Are you going to, to every terrorist that you meet, for everyone who's out to necessarily harm you and hurt you, are you going to actually care for them? Are you actually going to meet their needs with as much joy and energy as you spend on yourself to meet your own needs? Right? I mean, because that, that's what the Bible is saying is the solution. You want to know the—I mean, it's very simple. You want to know the solution to the world's problems? This. And yet, we don't do it. We don't. This is the biblical roots for justice right here. Now, last point then. How do we do it? I think we need to remember again, seeing isn't enough. If you're a, uh, a person like myself, I love to sort of break things down and find out what's really going on here. Seeing is not enough. The key to the answer to this text that's embedded latently inside of it is this. If the whole point, some people still will push back right now and say, no, no, no. Go treat everybody else as your neighbor. And yes, at some level, but you know how Jesus could have made that point better? Put the Samaritan in the ditch. Because if you put the Samaritan in the ditch, then to all the people listening would have been like, whoa, okay, I need to go out there and love people, even the ones who are more forced. He didn't do that, did he? He purposely put the law expert into the ditch. He put the good person in the ditch. He put the, the one who was listening in the ditch, which means you and me. Because I think Jesus is asking a deeper existential question. He's saying to all of us, to what degree do you and you and you realize that you're in that ditch? To what degree do you realize that your life is hanging by a thread? You know what's going to happen to everybody in this room, including me? At the end of our lives, there's going to be this great big question, what happens after death? And what we don't realize when, is that when we're in that ditch, who is going to bring us back from the brink of the dead? And it, I think Jesus is trying to tell us, yeah, 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 you need to extend grace to others, but what he's really trying to get at is you will never and you can't extend that grace to other people until you first have that grace extended towards you. And I think Jesus is saying that. Who's going to do that for you first? If nobody, I think I can safely say this, if nobody actually does the biblical basis of justice, if nobody all the time, everywhere, extends themselves beyond their abilities for others, who's going to do that for you? I think Jesus is saying, it is I. I have to be that true Samaritan. And, it, and you look at all the par parallels of Jesus. Jesus had every good thing. He had glorious, perfect union in the Godhead. He could have stayed safe. He could have said, you know what? I don't know if I want to go down there. I don't know if I, they, they need me. But no, he didn't. He said, wait, they need a true neighbor, and I will go and be that and become that for them. How does he do that? I mean, the whole arc of the Bible is that Jesus didn't just do this at the risk of his life. He did this at the cost of his life. Jesus didn't just spend some money on the side. He spent his own blood. And he said, hey, I can get you out of that ditch, but the only way I can get you out of that ditch on the floor is to put myself into it. 
and he gave it up for you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the person with infinite riches. What do you see in the Bible? You see Jesus goes to Jerusalem too, but he goes with a, on a borrowed donkey, and he stays in borrowed homes, and he, when he dies, he gets into a borrowed tomb as he has nothing of his own anymore. And until we recognize that, until we recognize that we were in and still are in a ditch of our own making, and until you see what he did for you, we are never going to be able to walk out those doors and actually do this for other people. Not fully. And do you recognize, so that's what I'm trying to say, is do you recognize the ditch that you're in is the, the ditch of not loving other people? Or maybe this morning, right now, you're thinking about your food choices after this. Maybe you're in the ditch of apathy. Maybe you're in the ditch of, meh, okay, another, another sermon about this. Jesus says, guess what? I went into that ditch for you, even that one. And if and when you see that he helped you when you deserved nothing, that is going to be the moment, that's going to be the inflection point when you will help other people no matter what they deserve. And only if you're a recipient of this grace will you be able to move out in the world in grace. This is, what, this is how the world works, that lo- people loved love other people. People given grace give grace to other people. People who are forgiven forgive over and over and over again. And not only that, you're not going to go, you know what, if you realize that they're no different from you, if you go, you know what, wait a second, I didn't deserve to be loved and cared for, and yet I was loved and cared for. How can I walk by this person who doesn't deserve love or care? Because I was the same way. Right? If If I was poor, how can I walk by the poor? If I was needy, how can I walk by the needy? This is why I think probably my favorite scene in all the Lord of the Rings is at the end, it's not about Frodo, it's not about, you know, Bilbo, it's actually one of the other hobbits. Hobbits in in Lord of the Rings are about half the size of, of humans, and there's this hobbit, Mary, who at the very, very end of the entire book is at the battle of all battles, and he's this small, insignificant individual before the main villain, the commander of of the evil army. And his horse has thrown him off, and everybody has fallen away. Nobody could stand in front of this individual. Nobody can face this enemy. And the text says, he crawled on all fours like a dazed beast, that such a horror was on him, he was blind and sick. See, he thought he was done. He's like, I can't go forward anymore. I'm too tired. I can't make this. The text says, he, he, well, the, the, um, Lord of the Rings, not this text, the Lord of the Rings text says <laughs> that he dared not open his eyes or even look up. I think a lot of us folks, the reason why this, we, we glaze over is we're just trying to get by. We're tired. We feel insignificant. We're on the battlefield of life and we're just like, <sighs> and he's like, I'm ready to be done. And yet the next line in the story hope unlooked for came out. It says, out of the blackness in his mind, he heard a voice that seemed strange. The voice came between him and the monster, and and the voice said this, do what you will, but I will hinder you if I may. And he couldn't see who it was, but someone had come to save him. Somebody had come to challenge certain death, and that hope filled him, and it filled him in such a way it said that his His heart was filled with great wonder, and suddenly the slow-kindled courage of his race awoke, and he clenched his fist with new resolve and wonder and fought. See, I would argue that the problems of this world are complex. I would argue that 
the answers are even more complex. Every fix that we do seems to create new problems. There are systemic problems in, in, in structures. There are individual personal choices. Those are intermixed. One answer doesn't solve it. It's all in there. And we feel weak and small and helpless. And we're like, where can I even start? And that was Mary. And he would have given up. He could have given up. In fact, he was going to, except for the fact that he got this courage. He had this ability to say, you know what? No, not today. And he, and he went out there and he stood up again. And he had this confidence to act out love because he had somebody else who was willing to love him by dying for him. And if that was true, that that's what awoke the slow-kindled courage of his race. Friends, you and I will only be real neighbors to other people. You only have the courage to face other things that are out there in the world if you keep looking not to the one who was willing to die for you, but to the one who actually did. And that will wake you up from, from walking around on the other side of the road. In my experience, love always wakens up other love right? And you love people best when you feel loved. And guess what? This is the most amount of love available to us in the world, in the universe. Before I end, I want to just—this whole week I've been thinking, where did I feel this the most? And it had to be probably in my college dorm. It was probably the first time I, I experienced—I'd grown up in the church. I'd heard all the Bible studies, but I basically still thought it was try hard and be good and be like David and be like Jonah and be like these good people. And there was this moment, I still can't quite experience it or, or explain it, but it was this moment where I began to weep as I realized how lame I was of trying to get other people to like me. That I had this deep sort of desire for affection and, and, and approval. And I, would be, and I was acting a certain way and, and trying to get people to like me. To, so I, I felt something of value. And it was, like, it was all of a sudden, like in a moment— I realized, wait, I already had that. That Jesus had already said, I've been here all along. I've been here for 2,000 years. And I love you, and I accept you, and you never have to perform to get that. You don't have to act a certain way. It's already here. And I couldn't explain it. It was in that space where, because I felt loved fully and finally, I was able to, the next hour, I walked out and was able to love and serve people in a way that I never had before. Because I did, wasn't needing them to give something back to me. I wasn't asking something from them. I was asking what I could do for them. And I had this new boldness to love others and not need them. If our God is the kind of God who brings naked, broken people back to him and binds them up, now as individuals, if we're touched by this kind of grace, we become people who do this. And it's not a duty. It's not like you have to. It just— It'll just be like normal. It'll be, nor be something we want to. So to get really practical, the last thing I'll say is this. How do we do this? It's not easy. It's, sacri it's, it's sacrificial. It's messy. It's complex. But here's the cool thing. You're not being asked to be a neighbor to everyone everywhere at all the same time. You're not. You're a finite, physical entity, and you're just being asked to be a neighbor to the person next to you. The person who lives next to you. I, for, that, for you, that means for some of you, that means knocking on the door to your physical neighbor and saying, what, the, what might you need? For some of you, it might be a coworker. For some of you, it might be walking with an individual who you normally wouldn't probably extend yourself towards, but you do. For some of us, it means looking around for people who are lying in ditches in our community. 
For some of us, it means walking with other folks about, through their faith journey. If you want to get back to that question, what's the point of everything? How now shall we live? This is it. Live lives of love because you've been loved, but, and because of that love, it moves out to others. Folks, Redeemer LSQ, this is in our DNA. We exist to live this love out. Because you've been neighbored cosmically, we can now do it locally. You were not left for dead. Your wounds were bandaged. And what's great is every day we get to rediscover that joy and that wonder and say, ah, that's what this is. Live that out. Live lives of love. Feel free to work out in front of other people, messy, broken, with other messy, broken people. And we'll see what happens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth that we might have heard before. But Father, I pray it meets us in a renewed space. Help us to see you didn't just put the Samaritan in the ditch that, that would have told us to, to find these, the most, you know, the, the worst cases. You put us in the ditch so that we might be woken up to the fact that you have already moved our, in our lives in such a way to change us and love us. Father, we could, I could stand up here and guilt people and shame them. That's what the world does. I'm asking them to look at you in a renewed way, to get a sense of peace and wonder and love that, that wells up in our hearts, that moves us out in spaces where you didn't think we could, and to go into places, cracks and crevices, temporal places, justice is meeting physical needs of the individuals around us in cosmic ways. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.